Hello and welcome to The Ballpark. I'm Chris Gilson, the managing editor of the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. On the 30th of January, 2020, Professor Nicholas Bacola joined the U.S. Center for the event, James Baldwin versus William F. Buckley, The Great Debate of a Race in America. Professor Bacola is the Elizabeth and Morris Glixman Chair in Political Science at Linfield College. He is a writer, lecturer, and teacher who specializes in the area of American political thought. At the event, Professor Bacola spoke about his new book, The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the debate over race in America, and revisited the historic debate between these two thinkers, the controversies that followed, and how their clash continues to eliminate America's racial divide today. Good evening, and welcome to the LSC. I'm Dr. Clive James Nwonka, a LSC Fellow in Film Studies in the Department of Sociology here, and also an affiliate of LSC's US Centre. It's a pleasure to be introducing today's talk and book launch here at LSC's old building. Um, before I begin, I'd like to thank Saga, Chris, Ade, and Peter, and the rest of the team at the US Centre for the invitation to be involved in tonight's event. On February 18th, 1965, in a packed and televised Cambridge Union, two of America's most influential public intellectuals debated the subject, the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. On one side, we had James Baldwin, the writer and leading voice of the civil rights movement. On the other, we had William F. Buckley, an opponent of the movement and a leading conservative icon. Tonight's event is titled James Baldwin and William F. Buckley, The Great Debate Over Race in America. Based on this stunning new book detailing that famous moment in US history, titled The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr. and the Debate Over Race in America. And it's a pleasure this evening to welcome the book's author, Professor Nick Bucoli, uh, Nick is the Elizabeth and Morris Glixman Chair in Political Science at Linfield College, Oregon. He is a writer, lecturer, and teacher who specializes in the area of political thought. In addition to his latest book, he is also the author of The Political Thoughts of Frederick Douglass in Pursuit of American Liberty. Nick will offer a talk on his new book, its key themes, and the continued relevance of the debate within America's racial divide. But equally, this talk will resonate with contemporary issues such as freedom of speech, public intellectuals, and how the media can and should manage debates within our increasingly polarized racial times. So Nick will be talking for around 45 or 50 minutes, which will then leave around 40 minutes or so for a discussion and questions from you, the audience, uh, before we go to book sales afterwards. For those are using Twitter, uh, the hashtag for today's event is LSCUSBaldwin v. Buckley. Please join me in welcoming Professor Nick Bukala. All right, good, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for, for being here. Um, thank you to, to Chris and to Clive and the whole, uh, the whole team that's been putting this together. Um, didn't have much time to get the event ready, and they did a remarkable job getting it ready and with uh, with grace. And I really, really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to share this this project with you. Um, it's an honor for me to to be in this uh, esteemed academic institution and, and and share this story. So I will take you to the space that Clive was just describing to get us started. February 18, nineteen sixty five, just about fifty five years ago, 
this space, for those of you who have not seen the BBC recording of the debate itself, was so full you could hardly recognize it. Uh, every spot in the benches was, was filled with students. All the, the room and the galleries. There are indeed so many students that the debaters, when they entered the hall, had to step over the legs of students. And as they were debating, they had to watch out or they might step on a student sitting behind them or sitting on the floor behind them. And most of the students that night, February 18, 1965, were in that space to see James Baldwin. Uh, Baldwin was, at that moment, one of the most famous writers in the world. Uh, he was, uh, in, as his friend Malcolm X described him, the poet of the civil rights revolution. Uh, and by, by that, I think Malcolm meant that Baldwin was uh, the leading writer, the leading literary voice. Baldwin called himself in, in that period a witness. He said, my job is to write it all down. Baldwin was second only really to Martin Luther King Jr. as a kind of face associated with the black freedom struggle. I'll talk more about the, this, this story of, of Baldwin's involvement in the struggle as we move along. The students were also intrigued uh, by the prospect of seeing Baldwin share the platform with William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, Buckley was not internationally known yet. He would be uh, in due course. But he was identified in the sort of uh, the coverage before leading up to the debate by the student newspaper and things like that, and the sort of uh, rumors going around campus as a, a worthy foe for Baldwin. Buckley was second only to Barry Goldwater as a face of American conservatism, the burgeoning conservative movement. He was a sort of St. Paul of the conservative movement, as, as one of his biographers described him. He was a leading, not really an original intellectual, but a leading popularizer uh, and organizer of conservative ideas, really a founding father of American conservatism. So the students were intrigued by seeing Baldwin, uh, and they were especially intrigued by seeing him share the platform with Buckley, who had also established himself as one of the leading critics of the black freedom struggle in the United States. So there was a promise of, of a clash, and that's one of the things that drew the students to the, the union that night. As you can see, when you know, Clive held up the book, the book's a, it's a substantial tome, 2.2 pounds, um, and uh, you know, it can be used as a weapon, a doorstop, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, and the reason it's, it's so long is, is that it's about more than just what happened uh, that night on February 18th. It's, it's about uh, Baldwin and Buckley uh, met that night, and I, two chapters of the book are about that night. Um, but what the book really is, they're about almost exact contemporaries. Baldwin and Buckley are born 15 months apart from each other. And so what I do in the book is I kind of I weave their uh, biographies, primarily their intellectual biographies, against the backdrop of the rise of the civil rights and conservative movements in the United States, two movements that they each respectively did a lot to shape. Uh, and so it goes from 1924 uh, through to the, uh, the, end, you know, the, the aftermath of the debate in 65, and then, then the kind of narrative wraps up in, in 1968. So that's, uh, that's what the book is. And what I hope to do tonight is give you a sense of that story, uh, going back to the beginning, uh, to the night itself. And I'll play a couple of clips uh, from the debate, just to give you a sense of, of what this story is and uh, why it's relevant, as Clive said, to, uh, to contemporary politics, both in the U.S. and around the world. So let's start with, with James Baldwin. August 2nd, 1924, Baldwin is born in Harlem. He's born to a single mother. Uh, his mother gets married to a guy named David uh, Baldwin when, when uh, James is about uh, two or three years old. And he, they go, uh, Baldwin's mother and father go on to have uh, eight more children. So Baldwin's the oldest of, of nine siblings. Um, and Baldwin, one of the things that's most remarkable about Baldwin's writing is his ability to draw on his personal experiences to make 
really profound moral and political points. And Baldwin reflects on that time in Harlem uh, as he's growing up, his family's growing up at the margins. Uh, and what he describes is a life that was marked uh, by domination, domination that sometimes had a human face. Uh, as you'll see in the clip I play from the debate, Baldwin says there's a kind of sense in which one's life is dominated by the police officers, the landladies, the landlords, the insurance agents, uh, millions of details of every day that communicate to you that your life doesn't matter quite as much. Baldwin describes that in really powerful terms in his autobiographical writing. He also says that there's a kind of domination that doesn't have a human face, that limits the freedom and opportunities uh, of, of people like him. And he says that's the kind of cruel, merciless uh, structures of power that dictate uh, so many aspects of your life. And so Baldwin describes this, this uh, experience of domination, and he says that what was really remarkable to him and most and sort of had an impact on him from a very young age were the ways in which this these systems of domination uh, really destroyed his father. He watched his father uh, sort of dying before his eyes. His father ends up dying in 1943 uh, in a mental institution. And Baldwin says his, his life was really consumed by despair. Uh, David Baldwin Sr. Uh, was somebody who, from his son's perspective, came to believe what the white world said about him, that he developed this kind of self-hatred that led him to hate other people and treat other people with great cruelty. Uh, one of the most powerful moments for me reading uh, James Baldwin reflecting on his father is when he says, my fa I, I cannot remember a single instance when any of my father's nine children were happy to see him come home. Uh, and that to me, as I, as I read that, it just, it, it's, you know, I'm, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old at home. To, to hear that uh, is, is just extraordinarily powerful and it communicates the sense in which David Baldwin was this, this broken human being. And so... James Baldwin, from a very young age, is, is, is looking at this, uh, this world in which he's, he's seeing his parents and, and people like his family dominated. Uh, he sees this despair eating his father alive. And he's looking, as he says in The Fire Next Time, uh, one of his most famous books uh, published in 1963, that in that context, what one needs to find, what one's looking for is a handle or a lever. Uh, some means by which you can fight back and survive in this world and try to avoid uh, this despair that he sees consuming his father. And for Baldwin, that handle, that lever, ends up being language. Uh, Baldwin, from a very young age, is obsessed with words. Uh, he says, you know, once he learned to read, he read everything he could get his hands on. He read every book that was worth reading in the, the library in Harlem. He then began to venture outside of Harlem where there were libraries that were more well-stocked. And he was reminded on more than one occasion by white police officers and others that he ought not go outside of where he's supposed to be. But Baldwin persists, he reads, he reads, he reads, and at the age eight, he begins to write and write and write. And Baldwin is really taken by the power of language to connect people across time and space. So he reads things like Charles Dickens and he finds ways to make sense of his own experience. And he begins to try to put pen to paper to, to understand where he is in the world and how he might be able to survive it. Baldwin also, he follows his father in one particular way, and that is into the church. Uh, Baldwin's father was a lay Pentecostal preacher in Harlem's storefront churches. And so at the age of 14, James Baldwin becomes a young minister. Uh, and he spends three years in the pulpit preaching. Uh, he was apparently a very 
powerful and, and, and popular preacher. And although he leaves the church at 17, in some ways he, he remains forever a preacher. Uh, and, and in the, the book I argue, uh, and I'm not the first to argue this, that really the speech he delivers at Cambridge in 1965 is a sermon to Jeremiah uh, about white supremacy. So a little over a year later, later, William F. Buckley Jr. is born in the same city, born in New York City in November 1925, uh, but he may as well have been born on a different planet. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr. was born to immense wealth and great privilege. Uh, his father was a real estate and oil man who had made, lost, and regained fortunes by the time Jr. was born. Uh, he was a Texan uh, who was awash in, in new money. Uh, Buckley's mother was a proud, this is a self-description, daughter of the Confederacy from New Orleans. Uh, whose, whose family was awash in old money. So the, the new money, the old money, the key word is money, uh, lots and lots of money. The Buckleys uh, had a, a great deal of wealth. And with that wealth, they did some of the things we would expect. Uh, they, they, built, uh, they built a beautiful home uh, that they called Great Elm. They had a 47-acre estate, one of their estates in, in Connecticut. Um, and in that estate, they had, Buckley recalls in his childhood, this feeling of, of limitless opportunity and limitless space. And one of the things that's a, a contrast that's, that's really powerful, um, you know, as is, is, is I was you know, writing about these stories, is Baldwin says that his childhood, that the first thing he says about life in Harlem is it's claustrophobic. The sense of, 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 of uh, limited space, there's kind of a pounding in the skull as a result of the kind of claustrophobia of his experience, Baldwin says. He says, he, you know, when I was, you know, a, a child, I was many times sleeping in a bed with five of my siblings, five or six of my siblings. To contrast that with Buckley, he just has this limitless space, right? This, this vast estate. Um, and in that the vast estate, there's, there's kind of all these things that he can do with his time. And his parents filled their time. And all, they, he ends up with nine siblings, Buckley does. And uh, they have a kind of very robust liberal arts education right there in their home. They have two live-in tutors. They have several visiting tutors. They have servants attending to their every need. Uh, and with that liberal arts education, they study every subject under the sun. But most importantly for Buckley's parents, uh, they're taught a particular worldview. The Buckley children are taught, first of all, they're, they have a devout, very conservative brand of Catholicism that they're taught. Um, and secondly, they're taught this political, this moral and political doctrine that they call individualism, which was a kind of catch-all term for the Buckley family that was meant to communicate their hostility to any form of collectivism. Communism, socialism, the New Deal policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, it also contained within it this idea of unabashed elitism. The Buckleys were taught that some people are fit to rule and others are fit to be ruled. And for the Buckleys, that this was explicitly racialized. The Buckleys were taught, and, and the, the Buckley children say, by any definition, our parents were racist. They believed in a kind of natural racial hierarchy, but they taught us that uh, we should not practice racial animus. They taught the Buckley children not to practice racial animus. They had this kind of uh, obligation to take care of those beneath them. This is what uh, especially Buckley's mother taught him. So she taught him that he was superior, but he had an obligation to take care of those beneath him, especially those who were loyal. Let's see where this is going. Uh, so Buckley, um, this, this worldview is... Uh, is what Buckley and, and his siblings are taught. And Buckley 
So in, in many ways, you know, Baldwin is on this quest to avoid becoming his father. And Buckley doesn't want to become his father, but he wants to, his goal in life is to defend his father's worldview. His father teaches him that this worldview is what has made possible this tremendous affluence that they've been able to enjoy. And so Buckley also, one thing he has in common with Baldwin is he is somebody who is deeply committed to the idea that language can change the world. And he's very good at talking. And he talks and he talks and he talks uh, until the day he dies. And what he talks about is, is this, he provides a, a philosophy uh, of defending this, this worldview that his, father, his parents had taught him. So Buckley goes on to uh, Millbrook uh, uh, Elite Prep School. And he's not shy about defending his views. In one sense, Buckley is a kind of outsider, although he's surrounded by other elites. Um, he's a Catholic in, in largely Protestant context. Um, he also, when he goes off to Millbrook Prep School, his family is um, advocating the America First doctrine against U.S. intervention in World War II prior to Pearl Harbor. That's not a popular view at the time. But Buckley is not shy about informing not only other students about the wrongness of their views, but also faculty. He was famous for barging into faculty meetings to lecture the faculty on the wrongness of their views. Uh, Buckley then goes off to serve in the U.S. Army, uh, doesn't see combat, but he, he's in the Army for two years, and then he enrolls at Yale University as a 21-year-old freshman. And at Yale, Buckley says he expected to find commitments similar to those he'd been raised uh, to believe, right? Commitments to Christianity, he knew it was a predominantly Protestant place, but he, he, he hoped to find uh, further um, strength in his, his Christian views, and also uh, in individualism, right? This, this sort of general moral and political doctrine I just described. But he says he was shocked and appalled to find that many of his professors were indifferent to Christianity and individualism, and even worse, many of his professors were hostile to these values that he had been taught. And so Buckley becomes a kind of rebel on campus. He is somebody who is participating in any way he can in challenging uh, folks who disagree with him. So he is a debater. He joins the Yale Political Union as a very skilled debater. He's especially skilled at undermining the positions of his opponents. And he also becomes the uh, chairman, as they called it, or editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News. And he uses that role as a journalist to comment on national politics. So the, the election of 1948 happened uh, when he was at Yale, which was a very interesting election. Uh, and also on campus politics. Buckley takes to the pages of the Yale Daily News to write uh, essay-length critiques of his professors, professors on campus who are undermining Christianity and individualism from his perspective. So Buckley uh, is, is somebody who's defending these views in these public ways uh, at this you know, fairly young age. Um, and after he graduates from Yale, the first thing he does is he sits down to write a book-length indictment of his alma mater. So his first book is called God and Man at Yale, in which he lays out the systematic critique of this, uh, this education that he says is failing, not only students at Yale, but students all, all across the country. Um, and he says, basically, uh, the, the problem at institutions like Yale is they believe in a hoax, and that hoax is, is this idea of academic freedom. Buckley says uh, that liberals and socialists are hiding behind this idea of academic freedom to corrupt you know, the young. Um, Buckley says the great paradox that Marx Higher education is that Christian individualist parents send their children off to university only to have them 
turned into atheistic socialists. And so what Buckley calls on institutions like Yale to do is allow greater control by the alumni and the boards of trustees to hire faculty, to fire faculty, and to control the curriculum. Now, that was a very controversial book, uh, as you might imagine, uh, but it, it gets a lot of attention. I mean, although he's only in his, um, in his 20s, uh, this is a book that is you know, covered by major magazines. It sells quite well. No one, most people don't like it, but he proves to be impossible to ignore. Now, if that wasn't controversial enough, taking on academic freedom, Buckley's next book uh, is called McCarthy and His Enemies, which was a book-length defense of Senator Joseph McCarthy, who is leading the latest Red Scare in the country. And Buckley co-authors that book with a guy named L. Brent Bozell, who was one of his, um, his Yale debating partner who went on to become his brother-in-law. And Bozell and Buckley argue that McCarthy is an imperfect instrument. They acknowledge there's certain problems with Senator McCarthy. And if those of you who know a little bit about McCarthy know that there were plenty of problems with, with Senator McCarthy. Uh, they say McCarthy's guilty of exaggeration. He sometimes goes a little bit too far. But they say he's, he's playing a vitally important role in American political culture because he's enforcing a public orthodoxy. This is an idea they had been taught at Yale uh, by one of the few non-liberal professors, a guy named Wilmore Kendall, who's one of Buckley's intellectual mentors. And what Kendall had taught them is the idea of an open society is a very dangerous idea. Any sane society is a closed society. There has to be a sort of boundaries that are policed very carefully about what is, what is thought and what is said. And so Buckley says that McCarthy is playing this very, you know, reasonable role. He's trying to enforce a public orthodoxy. Communists are, should not be allowed in American public life. Now, Buckley and Bozell anticipate a counter-argument, which is, isn't one of the problems, and even if one accepts their argument to that point, which, you know, let's just grant them that for a moment, isn't there a problem in that McCarthy's, his net is sweeping up people who are not actually communists, non-communist liberals. And Buckley and Bozell have a couple of responses to this. One is to say, well, if that's really what's going on, McCarthy is doing a terrible job. Liberals dominate the media. They dominate academia. They dominate in so many areas of American life. So it's, it doesn't really, they don't really buy the idea that he's, he's, uh, he's engaging in this sort of conduct. Secondly, they, they sort of more perhaps more ominously say, well, although liberals are not evil in the same way communists are, most of them at least, uh, they are... They might be so wrong-headed in their views, they might be so wrong-headed in their analyses that the, exhaust, the, the, the American public will be so exhausted with them that they too will go beyond the boundaries of the American public orthodoxy. So Buckley and Bozell are a little bit ambivalent on this point about whether or not that would be okay with them. Um, they sort of warn that the American public might make this decision and, and don't uh, offer much critique of that uh, if that's going to happen. Um, okay, so while this is happening, while Buckley is arriving on the intellectual scene, uh, James Baldwin is as well. So in 1948, Baldwin leaves the United States uh, and, and moves to Paris. And Baldwin really wants to, his goal, he says, is to become an honest man and a good writer, figure out what that means. And he gets his start, um, both you know, prior to leaving the U.S. And then, and then once he leaves the U.S., as a, as a reviewer. Baldwin... Um, Gets the advice from an editor. Baldwin really wants to write an autobiographical novel about his experiences in Harlem. And he's having a lot of difficulty doing that. And an editor suggests to him, 
Start writing book reviews. It'll force you to your desk on a regular basis and you'll have to meet deadlines and to develop a kind of discipline, of, the discipline of a writer. So Baldwin begins writing reviews and uh, a few, few years later, he's able to complete Go Tell on the Mountain, which is his first novel, this autobiographical novel that he had hoped to write. And Mountain is a really powerful story that is, in many ways, you can sort of see his, character, the, the, his father, David Baldwin, is, is sort of represented as character Gabriel. You can see elements of Baldwin himself and, and various characters in the novel. And what Baldwin said he was trying to do, and this is something he was working out as he wrote these reviews, is avoid what he called the pitfalls of protest fiction, uh, protest writing. Protest writing, Baldwin argued, is the kind of writing in which the humanity of the characters is subsumed by the ideological preoccupations of the author. So Baldwin wanted to, he obviously had moral and political points he wanted to make, but he didn't want to lose uh, the depth of his, the humans that he was talking about in the process. And so he attempts to do that in, in Mountain and, and does it uh, quite successfully um, in the book. The book uh, is, is certainly uh, sort of signals his arrival on the literary scene. A few years later, Baldwin has a second novel completed called Giovanni's Room. And Giovanni's Room, uh, he, he takes this novel to the publisher who published Mountain, uh, Alfred Knopf, very prominent publisher in the United States, and says, Mr. Knopf, I have another novel for you. Knopf reads it and says, I'm not going to publish this. Uh, and I'm going to do this. I'm not going to publish it as a favor to you, Jimmy. And, he's, and he's, he explains that you are, and this is Baldwin roughly quoting Knopf, um, you are a promising young Negro writer, and you've just handed me an all-white gay novel. So if you are familiar with Giovanni's Room, it's a story of a white American who, is, who falls in love with an Italian uh, bartender, Giovanni, uh, in Paris. And it's the story of their, their love affair from its enchanted beginnings to its bitter end. And so Knopf refuses to publish it. And Baldwin actually finds a publisher here in the UK. Michael, Michael Joseph is the first publisher who agrees to publish it. 1956, right? this is a very uh, controversial a novel for Baldwin um, to be published in this time. And Baldwin's response to Knopf is essentially this. He says that if you think that my primary subject in Mountain and Go Tell on the Mountain is race, and, or you, and you think my primary subject in Giovanni's Room is sex, then you're missing the point. Uh, Baldwin says my primary subject is the freedom and fulfillment of human beings. And what are the obstacles to human beings achieving their freedom and fulfillment? And so he says, you're missing the point, and he never works with Knopf again. Uh, and he does eventually get it published in the United States by another press later that year. So Baldwin in this period, is, he's working on these novels, and he's working through these, with these characters, this, this, this idea I just described. The core of Baldwin's philosophy is, is this idea of the dignity of the individual, of human being, the free, and what, what is it necessary for, for an individual to really be free? Now, in this period, he's trying to work out in nonfiction writings, in his essays and, and, and still a few reviews, um, he's trying to work out philosophically what he's doing creatively with these characters. And really, Baldwin's writing, both in this period and going forward, um, is focused on the nexus of, of three, three things, three big things. Identity, morality, and power. Baldwin is, is really obsessed with what he called the question of identity, this question of who we take ourselves to be as individuals and as members of communities, and the related question of how our sense of identity leads us to treat other people. And in the background of both those questions, tangled up, these are all these questions are tangled up and overlapping in various ways, 
uh, is the question of, of what, how does power manifest itself in the world? Who has power, who doesn't, and why? And Baldwin reaches the conclusion as he's thinking about these three big sets of questions that most of us, most of the time, in some, in some sense, all of the time, we're in a state of identity crisis. We don't really know who we are, individually or collectively, because we don't really want to know who we are. Baldwin says most human beings most of the time, rather than really trying to, to introspect in a way that would lead them to some honest conclusions about their identities, most of us convince ourselves, delude ourselves in mythologies that make us feel sick. Right? We want to avoid this kind of existential confrontation because it's terrifying. So Baldwin says that the primary way that we do that is through status. Baldwin says that it, because we don't really have a true sense of identity, what we try to do is define ourselves in relation to others, right? And in order to make ourselves feel safe, we try to define ourselves in relation to others in ways that make us feel superior. So going back to the things he's thinking about in Mountain and Giovanni, he's working out philosophically why, you know, the, the roots of racism, the roots of homophobia. Uh, and he says, this is really the core of our trouble is this kind of identity crisis. Because the problem is, we rely on status, but status is never going to, we're never going to be satisfied. Right? We're always going to be in a state of status anxiety. We're always going to be haunted by the idea that someone somewhere is superior to us too, right? So he's, he sees that there's something about this. It's a conundrum where we're trapped in this, this kind of cycle. Baldwin is, wants to think through the question of how do we get, how do we escape from that trap? And I won't tell you how yet. I'll save that for the end. Uh, at least what Baldwin thinks. Uh, so Baldwin is, this is what he's doing in this period. Now, Buckley publishes these two books and uh, they're quite successful, but he's frustrated by the glacial pace of, of book publishing. So all the authors in the room, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slow process, a tedious process. And Buckley wants to have an impact on day-to-day -day politics. And he recognizes that journalism is, is, the, is, is one vehicle for him to do that. And he sees that journalism in American political culture, magazines have played a really important role. In the first half of the 20th century, magazines like The New Republic and The Nation uh, did a lot to shape the American progressive movement and eventually have an impact on American law and public policy. And so what Buckley's hoping to do is utilize journalism as a way to form really an American conservative movement. At the time, there wasn't really something we could call a conservative movement in the country. And so Buckley goes to work for the leading conservative, uh, leading right-wing magazine of the, the time, which was called the American Mercury. But Buckley was not cut out to be anyone's employee. Right? Remember, some people are fit to rule, others are fit to be ruled, and Buckley definitely thought of himself as someone who was fit to rule. And so that lasts about four months. What he really wants is a magazine of his own. Now, most of us, you know, we want a magazine, can't have a magazine, but, you know, it helps to have those wealthy parents. So uh, Buckley uh, gets an advance on his uh, inheritance, and, um, and he also proves to be a very gifted fundraiser, and he starts the process of, of launching a magazine, National Review, which launches in November 1955, was the first issue, but it was in the, in the making for, uh, for, for many months prior to that. 
In the magazine, Buckley hopes to bring together various groups on the right that don't really like each other very much and try to get them to get along a little bit and, and exist under one, one banner. So there's libertarians out there who are especially concerned about the perceived um, excesses of state activity and economic affairs. There, there's traditionalists out there who are concerned about uh, the perceived decline of morality and religion in the West. But these folks don't like each other. Buckley says to them, look, we may not agree on everything, but we can agree on a couple of things that we don't like. We don't like communism, it was 1955, and we don't like liberalism. And so come together under this banner, under in, in National, National Review, uh, and we can, we can fashion a movement, right? So Buckley plays this kind of outsized role in shaping what we think of as the American conservative movement, as a, not as an originator of ideas, but as an organizer of ideas, as a popularizer of ideas, um, and as somebody who is a kind of gatekeeper for American conservatism, who's going to be allowed in and who's going to be kept out. Now, one of the big questions for someone like Buckley founding a magazine in November 1955, or in the period leading up, starting in 1954, is what will a magazine of this nature have to say about race and civil rights? Right in the same months when Buckley is founding National Review, you have a number of things happening uh, in American politics on questions of race and civil rights. Of course, there are always a number of things happening, but a number of things that are sort of world, you know, or historically especially um, significant. Right in 1954, you have the Supreme Court handing down the Brown v. Board school desegregation decision, uh, saying that separate but equal has no place in public education in the country. There's a huge backlash to that decision, both by elites uh, in Congress uh, and changes the politics in the South in a lot of different ways, also from the quote unquote grassroots, things like the White Citizens Councils emerge, uh, the Ku Klux Klan is mobilized, all these this sort of strong backlash against this decision. You have the lynching of Emmett Till, 14-year-old boy from Chicago, goes down to visit family in Mississippi and is, uh, is lynched, and that, that gets international attention for a variety, of, a variety of reasons. You have the arrest of Rosa Parks. You have the rise of this young 20-something-year-old uh, Baptist minister, Martin Luther King, the Montgomery bus boycott. All that is happening in 1954, 1955, when Buckley's found his magazine. Now, it is not a foregone conclusion that someone founding a conservative magazine in the United States in 1955 will take a position of hostility to civil rights. The major partisan faction opposed to civil rights, of course, were Southern Democrats. Buckley thought of himself as a Republican. There were many conservative Republicans who actually thought of themselves as friendly to civil rights. One of Buckley's favorite politicians, a guy named William Nolan, a senator from California, Buckley has Nolan contribute the lead essay to the first issue of National Review. Buckley wants Nolan to run against President Eisenhower, wants him to primary President Eisenhower from his right. Nolan was, was thought of himself as friendly to civil rights. But Buckley chooses a different course, and that course has consequences down to today. Buckley decides that National Review will take a position of hostility and skepticism to the black liberation struggle. Now, there's a lot to say here, but let me just start with the conclusion. The, the National Review, Buckley and National Review, make it from the very first issue. They are against Brown v. Board. They're against any federal intervention uh, to try to undermine segregation in the United States. Um, they are critics of just about everything Martin Luther, they think of King as an opponent, an enemy, 
in almost every single way. The only thing they're willing to defend that King does is the idea of an economic boycott. We can talk more about that in the Q&A if you'd like. That's the only legitimate form of social protest that, they, that the National Review crowd sees coming out of the civil rights movement. Uh, but this crew is against every meaningful piece of civil rights legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They are uh, critics of the student sit-in protesters, the Freedom Riders. Every step of the way, Buckley and his crew are in opposition. And Buckley says 10 years after the founding of National Review that his goal on questions of race, he's asked by somebody writing a 10-year anniversary book about National Review, uh, how, how, what was your goal on, on race matters? Buckley says, my goal was for the magazine to be extremely articulate, non-racist, but not reflexively racially egalitarian. Non-racist, but not necessarily racially egalitarian. Buckley is trying to you know, walk this very, very fine line. Now, obviously, this one of the, the big questions here is what does Buckley mean by racist? Well, what didn't count as racist then for hit for Buckley were, were all sorts of things that uh, that might cause us to uh, to have some pause. Buckley al allies himself with various people like this guy Richard Weaver, pictured here in the bottom right. Uh, Weaver was a sophisticated uh, scholar, a Southerner who at this time had found his. Uh, academic home at the University of Chicago, a teacher, a professor of rhetoric. Uh, and Weaver offered these really uh, complex philosophical defenses of what he called the Southern way of life. And what Buckley found in Weaver was really a philosophical defense of everything his mother ever taught him. Yes, Weaver said, we believe in racial hierarchy, but our understanding of racial hierarchy is this kind of almost feudal view. We have this obligation, these chains of obligations going up and down. And so Weaver said, we actually have a much more humane system. Our system of racial hierarchy is far more humane than a kind of, uh, you know, a rugged individualism. Buckley has lots of nice pieces written about people like Senator Strom Thurmond, who was his father's favorite politician. So the Buckleys had an estate in South Carolina as well. And Thurmond would come over and visit the family on a regular basis. Uh, and Thurmond here is pointing at the clock, expressing pride in a filibuster that he is, he's basically spoken for 24 hours straight in order to um, prevent civil rights legislation from passing. Uh, and so they call, Buckley's magazine calls Thurmond a latter-day Patrick Henry leading a second American revolution. Buckley, his go-to guy, more than anybody else, is this guy James Jackson Kilpatrick. On the left there, Kilpatrick is, I think, rightly called by his biographer, the salesman for segregation. He's sort of the leading public intellectual journalist who's basically devoted his professional career. He's an editor of a newspaper, author of many books, appears, he debates Martin Luther King on a couple of occasions. Uh, he's devoted his life to defending segregation. Uh, Buckley uh, finds him quite useful and, and lists him to uh, write for the magazine on a regular basis and wherever the sort of hot spot is in the civil rights struggle. Buckley even cozies up behind the scenes to people like William J. Simmons, who was uh, a leader of the White Citizens Council movement. The White Citizens Council emerged in the aftermath of that Brown v. Board school desegregation decision uh, as, as, as many um, folks called it the Uptown or Rotary Club version of the, of the Ku Klux Klan. Different outfits, same values. Uh, they, rather than uh, going around in the robes and the hoods, uh, the Citizens Council engaged in uh, kind of economic pressure they could ruin your life, right? If they thought you were, um, if they thought you were too sympathetic 
to, uh, to civil rights, they would ruin your life. That was what they did. Um, and so Buckley, behind the scenes, is cozying up to people like, like Simmons. And I can tell you more about that in, in the Q&A if you'd like. But Buckley, so Buckley has all this. This is, this is the kind of thing that he's publishing in National Review. And then his own views are coming through in small ways and, and some not so small ways. And the most remarkable document uh, of, to sort of capture Buckley's views in this period is something he publishes in 1957 called Why the South Must Prevail. And this piece is a piece, the proximate cause of the piece is the Civil Rights Act of 1957 is being debated. And this is uh, something that Senator Thurman plays a key role in this story. The Civil Rights Act of 1957 is not a piece of legislation that people talk about much because it's a piece of civil rights legislation that was hollowed out of just about any meaning. And one of the primary ways that it was hollowed out of any meaning was Thurmond and his allies in the Senate had a clause included that essentially provided a mechanism for, for jury nullification. And here's what I mean by that. They included a clause that said if there's an accusation, so part of the purpose of this legislation was to protect uh, the, the voting rights of African Americans in the South. Well, Thurman had a clause included that said if, if a Southern official is accused of violating the civil rights of someone, the guilt or innocence of that Southern official will be determined by a jury, not by a federal judge. Now, a, no jury in the South is going to convict anyone of anything. So it's essentially saying that we will have juries able to nullify the federal law, right? They will have juries able to nullify the federal law. Buckley writes why the South must prevail to defend that clause, to defend jury nullification. And he says, I'll just go back to my first slide here because it's, I've got the quote. The punchline uses some of the arguments I've just described, but the punchline is the white community in the South is entitled to take such measures as are necessary to prevail politically and culturally because for the time being, it is the advanced race. Buckley makes the argument that the, the, the commitment that supersedes all other, other commitments, and he mentions the Constitution, he mentions things like the Declaration of Independence, all of those in Buckley's mind are, are to be subordinated to what he calls the claims of civilization. And white people have an obligation to protect civilization from black liberation. That is the conclusion that Buckley reaches. Now, Buckley publishes that piece in the next issue of National Review, Brent Bozell, that guy who co-authored the McCarthy book, writes a critique of his brother-in-law and his boss uh, called The Open Question. And I should say, Bozell was no friend of civil rights. He was deeply against any federal intervention to a challenge segregation, but he was concerned about his brother-in-law's position for one reason, and that is Bob Bozell was a lawyer. And he said, the problem I have with your position is that there is a law at stake. The 15th Amendment, not only a law, there's constitutional law at stake. The 15th Amendment guarantees the right to vote. And aren't we, as conservatives, supposed to care about the rule of law? Aren't we supposed to be guardians of the Constitution? Bozell asks. Buckley writes a response in that same issue of National Review called it a clarification. And he says a lot of things that kind of re rehash some of the same arguments he'd made previously. But he adds a couple of things that are quite telling. One is he says, well, the 15th Amendment isn't quite the same as the rest of the Constitution. Because the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, they were adopted uh, by victors at war. They don't quite have the same legitimacy. In Buckley, we always have these you know, $10 vocabulary words. They're viewed by many in the South, he says, as inorganic accretions on the original document. So are they really the same? 
Now, and I, I say in the book, and he only mentions the 15th, but it does make one wonder what that logic leads us to believe about the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. Buckley doesn't say, but one wonders. And then he says, but if we must, and this is a point that has great relevance to where we are today in U.S. Uh, jurisprudence, if we must obey the Constitution, then perhaps what we need to do is try to fashion a colorblind Constitution, a colorblind approach to disenfranchisement. Right? So if, if, the, if the Southerners would just start disenfranchising more people right, on the basis, right, so if the, if the law is facially neutral and they actually uh, execute the law in a way that excludes white people who are not qualified to vote in various ways, then they will be protected from the accusation of racism. That's no longer racist, Buckley says. So long as you, he, and he acknowledges that it will have a disproportionate impact on people of color given the history. But he says that will protect them from the accusation of racism, right? That has been a, a central piece of uh, the American rights approach to hollowing out the, the accomplishments of the civil rights movement. Now, when I was writing uh, the book, the most, one of the most powerful moments for me as, as, a, as a writer was when I went from this like really deep dive into all of that. Uh, and you can imagine that was a, that was not an easy that was not a, a pleasant thing to do. But as I was working on that and, and really trying to understand, you know, what is it that Buckley and his crew are, are trying to say? What is their argument here? Or what are their arguments? Precisely at this moment, when they're going back and forth, Baldwin is re is returning to the United States. So he's been living in Paris, coming back uh, occasionally, but living in Paris from 1948 to 1957. 1957, he feels. Like, he needs to come back. He has a duty to come back because of everything that's happening on the civil rights front. And so, um, if you will indulge me for a second, I just want to read uh, the, the moment in the book when I describe Baldwin's return uh, and, and some of the reflections he has. At the very time when Buckley and his colleagues were debating the finer points of just how far Southern resistance ought to go, Baldwin was staring into the eyes of a 15-year-old boy was among the first black students to attend a recently integrated high school in North Carolina. Baldwin had made his way to this young man's living room on assignment to write pieces on the racial situation uh, in the South for Harper's and Partisan Review. It was his first trip to the South, and he said his journey was fueled by intrigue and terror. Baldwin was taken with the boy's very large eyes, which not only spoke, but registered volumes. Baldwin's preoccupation with the eyes of his subjects has great significance. The eyes speak in many ways, but perhaps most importantly, the eyes hold the key to intersubjective understanding. Baldwin's quest was to get as close as he could to seeing the world through the eyes of his characters, fictional and non-fictional. And his primary goal as a writer was to provide his readers with the chance to do the same. What had this boy's very large eyes, what had this boy's very large, large eyes seen lately? Baldwin learned that G, as he called him in the piece to protect his anonymity, had been subjected to name-calling, threatening phone calls, human barricades meant to keep him out of school, and physical assaults at the hands of other students. As Baldwin listened to this nightmare, he began to wonder how G managed to face what was surely the worst moment of his day, the morning, when he opened his eyes and realized that it was all to be gone through again. G proved to be rather tight-lipped about how all of this made him feel, and Baldwin began to suspect that was because his mother, Mrs. R, was present for the interview. 
It was his mother, after all, who had been one of only a few dozen parents in a city with a black population of 50,000 to submit an application for him to attend the school. She had, in a sense, sent him marching toward that white barricade. As Baldwin reflected on the precarious situation into which Mrs. R had thrust G, he wondered what prompted her to take this audacious, audacious step. Perhaps because Baldwin had helped raise his younger siblings, he had always been drawn to and haunted by what the world must look like through the eyes of a black parent. In Notes of a Native Son, one of Baldwin's early autobiographical essays, he described uh, looking around the church at his father's funeral and pondering what he called the impossibility every parent in that room faced. How to prepare the child for the day when the child would be despised, and how to create in the child, by what means, a stronger antidote to this poison than one had found for oneself. Mrs. R was one such parent, and when she was presented with the chance to get G out of the failed institution that was his former uh, school, she could not refuse. My boy is a good boy, she told Baldwin, and I wanted to see him have a chance. After speaking with G and his mother, Baldwin's next stop was a visit to the principal of G's new school, a young white Southerner who seemed to Baldwin to be bewildered and in trouble. What interested Baldwin was not so much this man's view of the merits of Brown v. Board or his thoughts on the details of North Carolina's pupil assignment integration program, but rather what it was like for him to play what was undoubtedly a difficult role in the drama that was developing in the South. After some back and forth, it became clear that although integration was simply contrary to everything he'd ever seen or believed, he had no hatred or ill will toward black people. And most importantly, he felt he had a job to do. Furthermore, he told Baldwin, race relations in his city were excellent and had not been strained by recent developments. Baldwin took this man at his word. He was no virulent racist or arch segregationist, but rather the sort of Southern moderate whose role in the maintenance of the Jim Crow regime had been almost robotic. Baldwin found himself rather liking this man and wanting to understand him. The principal struck him as gentle and even honorable, but also delusional. He, along with so many others, not only in the South, but in the entire country, had deluded himself into denying what Baldwin called the life, the aspirations, the universal humanity hidden behind the dark skin. And by so doing, he stayed insulated from any pangs of conscience that might force him a painful re-examination of his entire sense of reality. Perhaps the most powerful moment in the interview occurred toward its end, when Baldwin looked into the principal's eyes and said, it must be very hard for you to face a child and treat him unjustly because of something for which he is no more responsible than you are. In the anguish, pain, and bewilderment that filled the man's eyes at that moment, Baldwin caught a glimpse of the impossibility, that same phrase he used in the uh, the, the speech about the Harlem church, the impossibility that so haunted those parents in Harlem. So that moment of going from, you know, Buckley and his crew rationalizing their intransigence to black liberation to Baldwin in that living room, right? And, and looking into this young man's eyes and trying to understand what it must be like for him to wake up each morning and confront what he has to confront and trying to understand um, his, his mother and what, how she's processing all these things and trying to understand somebody like this white principal. Baldwin was always drawn, he, he, really, he really felt this duty to try to you know, understand someone like that white principal. And in fact, he really describes a kind of, you know, what he thought was a maturing of his worldview, um, whereas early in his life, he had this kind of hatred 
uh, for his father. He had this kind of hatred for people like that white principal. Um, he says that over time, what he really thought was, was you know, uh, he, he said that, that there's something about hatred, right, that is, is very uh, comforting. Right? He says that there's something about hatred. We, we want, we hang on to hatred because we're afraid of what happens if we let it go. And so Baldwin says that you know, part of his process of understanding human nature and possibly you know, understanding what might bring us closer to justice is trying to, trying to understand somebody even like this white principal. And that's the kind of thing that he does. So he calls himself, as I said earlier, a witness. His job, he says, is to write it all down. So he first engages with the civil rights struggle in that way, as a, as a kind of witness, he's writing it down. He goes uh, on that trip and he meets Martin Luther King for the first time. Uh, and he wants to try to understand not as much King's philosophy as much as how King, who's so young, how is he managing to bear the responsibility that he's taken on his shoulders? Baldwin wants to try to understand that question, that, that kind of existential question, which he thinks has great relevance beyond the sort of the, the laws and public policies and all those other really important things. So uh, what I do now is fast forward because there's a lot that happens. The book gets, uh, it, it, so the, the, the time periods that I cover get smaller and smaller as the book moves on, sorry, I'm blocked. Uh, so like, you know, early in the book, I, I'm covering sort of um, big chunks of time. And then as, as you know, as, as I get to maybe chapter, chapter four, chapter five, it starts to get to about one or two years uh, per, per chapter because so much is happening uh, in these years of 1962, 1963, 1964. Um, and Baldwin and Buckley are right in the heart of all of it. And they're, they're so prolific as writers, and they're, they're published writings, uh, and in, they're prolific in their private writings, right? So one of the really revelatory things uh, for me as I worked on this project was going into the archives, right? One of the things historians get to do is read dead people's mail, right? And so that's that was something that um, I stole that from the historian Sean Valentz, by the way. Take credit for that one. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Buckley was just, he has this vast archive at, at Yale and just constantly writing letters. And so you really get this glimpse into their minds as they are shaping this, this history. Um, and there's a lot that happens in those years. Um, I just would like to pull out two examples and then I promise I'll show you the clips of the debate and we'll, and we'll chat. Uh, is that okay? Is that okay? Are we doing all right? Um, so in this period, one example that strikes me as especially powerful on the Baldwin side of the story is um, in late 1962, Baldwin is invited to go on television with James Jackson Kilpatrick, the, the guy in the upper left there. So the leading salesman for segregation, this guy who's devoted his public life uh, to, to defending segregation. And Baldwin is invited to go on television to discuss Mr. Kilpatrick's new book, The Case for Southern School Segregation. And Baldwin, his, his friends, his agents, they don't want him to appear on television with James Jackson Kilpatrick. They think it's a big mistake. But Baldwin feels an obligation to engage with Kilpatrick. And the context in which they meet is, is really important. It just Weeks prior to them sitting down on this set in New York across the table from each other, uh, the Battle of Ole Miss occurs. An African-American uh, Air Force veteran named James Meredith is attempting to register for classes at the University of Mississippi, and all hell breaks loose. Uh, there are mobs who take over the campus. Uh, people are killed. Many people are injured. 
and there's really an armed insurrection, it'll miss. The, the federal troops have to come in, the National Guard and so on have to come in to, to quell this rebellion. And Baldwin sits down with Kilpatrick just in the, the wake of that. And so they sit down on this set to have this conversation. And the first thing Baldwin says, they're welcome to the show by the host, this guy named Eric uh, Goldman. And the first thing Baldwin says is he says, Mr. Kilpatrick, you think there's a difference between men like you who wear fancy suits and write semi-sophisticated books and those people in those streets who are committing acts of racist violence. Baldwin says there is no difference. In fact, I hold you far more responsible than the people in those streets. The people in those streets in many cases are caught in a web of delusion. They, are, they have been taught to believe that the source of their value is in their imagined whiteness. That is the, the sort of core of their existence. They, they don't know really what they're doing. Baldwin says, you know what you're doing. You are one of the people weaving that web of delusion. Not because you care about those people, but because you care about your own power. So he says, I accuse you, Mr. Kilpatrick, not of betraying me. I accuse you of betraying those people. So Baldwin goes on, like that's how he starts the show. So uh, you can imagine Kilpatrick might have been um, sweating at that point. Uh, and then he goes on for the rest of the, the show to just really interrogate Kilpatrick, play the role of a kind of cross-examining attorney uh, and, and critiquing his, his white supremacist views. And essentially, Kilpatrick, uh, his defense of his position is, is very similar to the one Buckley offered in 1957 in that piece. Kilpatrick says, uh, my beliefs are rooted in the idea that white people have made superior contributions to Western civilization and that they are best equipped to protect whatever in that civilization is worth protecting. So we can imagine some of the questions Baldwin asked him in response to this critique. But then he concludes the, the conversation with a kind of an accusation of a second betrayal. Baldwin says, you claim, sir, to be trying to conserve Western civilization. I accuse you of betraying Western civilization. You are doing far more to undermine the values that you claim to hold dear. You're doing far more to undermine, for example, the Judeo, the best that's in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the best that's in the American constitutional tradition. Uh, and so Baldwin accuses Kilpatrick of this, uh, of this second betrayal um, on, that, on that show. The second uh, example, the example on the Buckley side that I'll give you is in September. So Buckley in this period is losing a lot of battles. It's, it's sort of becoming more and more clear to him that, that they're not on the right side of history, so to speak. I mean, I think he still thinks he's on the right side of history, but they're, they're, they're clearly uh, losing ground. And so he sees King, sort of not that King was a popular figure in the country by and large, but he was gaining momentum. Buckley predicts that the March on Washington will be, you know, this, this bloodbath, and of course it is not. Um, he, he sees that uh, serious civil rights legislation is actually has a prospect of, of being adopted, and eventually it is in the summer of 64. And Buckley had been hoping for a long time that the Republicans would dominate a true conservative, and they do in 1964, this guy, Barry Goldwater, who was a conservative Arizona senator who had voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so there's this shift taking place in American politics, and it would take time to really work itself out. But this, the formerly solidly Democratic Deep South becomes Goldwater country, in the words, in, in the words of Kilpatrick. 
And so Buckley, what's happening in the, in the country is that there are a lot of people, including Martin Luther King, who say they see dangerous signs of Hitlerism, as a quote from King in the Goldwater campaign. They accuse Goldwater and his supporters of being racist or aligned with racists. And what's really telling to me about this period, there's a lot of telling things, but Buckley Wright, he has a special uh, section of National Review commissioned in, that's going to be published in September 1964. So just a little, just a month or uh, a couple months before the election. By that point, everyone knows Goldwater's going to lose. So Buckley's playing the long game. And what's fascinating about this special section is it's called Race in the Campaign. And there's, and what's, what's fascinating about it is two things fascinating. One is what it does not mention. And then what it does mention. So what he does not mention, even though Goldwater is being accused of, of being a racist and all these things, it hardly talks about any accusations against Goldwater. It hardly talks about any major civil rights issues that are being discussed at the time. It hardly talks about the South. Why? Because Buckley knew the South had been won. He's moving on. So what does he, what does he have? In, what, he, what does he include? He includes a, an essay on the white, it's called The White Backlash. And it's a, it's a framing essay for what will follow it. Buckley, in previous pieces leading up to that, had celebrated this idea of a white backlash by way of none other than George Wallace, the infamous ultra-segregationist governor of Alabama. Buckley had a lot of critical things to say about George Wallace, mostly because, as he put it in 1963, Wallace is not a good enough politician to defeat someone like Martin Luther King. Buckley says, Wallace, and this is a quote, undermines the cause of white people. But Buckley celebrated Wallace for doing one particular thing in 1964. And it's a thing that's often forgotten in American history. Wallace ran in three primaries against President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Symbolic runs in, in these primaries. And they weren't in the Deep South. I don't even think the Deep South, most of the Deep South states had primaries at the time. He runs in Wisconsin, Indiana, and Maryland. And he gets over 30% in each of those primaries. And Buckley celebrates this. He says, we conservatives have something to learn from Governor Wallace because he's running on this idea of, of a racial resentment. That white people are feeling threatened by black liberation and they should be. And so Buckley has this special edition written and the first thing he wants to talk about is white backlash and why it's justified. The next two pieces that follow that one is about busing in New York. So busing of, uh, of school children to achieve greater racial balance in the schools in New York because of de facto racial segregation in schooling. Buckley has a piece commissioned on that so that he can, he can sort of try to uh, tell white people they're, they're justified in their indignation about busing. The second one is about fair housing law in California. So in 1963, California had passed one of the most progressive pieces of uh, fair housing legislation in the country. And that same electorate that will overwhelmingly support Johnson over Goldwater, they have an even more overwhelming vote to overturn the fair housing law in the state, which will in some ways be crucial to the lead up to the, the riot in Watts that occurs in 1965. So Buckley sees a future for racial politics. Power is always going to adapt, right? He's adapting to these new circumstances. Um, all right. So... There's plenty more in there if, if you want to talk about it in the Q&A. I've already, I get carried away. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, so I want to play just two clips. So the, the backstory of the debate and how it happened um, is certainly something that's very fascinating. And I'm, and I'm more than happy to chat about it with you in the Q&A um, if you'd like. 
But uh, I will, as, as Clive mentioned, the, the motion before the House was the American dream is the expense of the American Negro. Uh, the Cambridge Union, February 18th, 1965. I'll just play like, you know, two or three minute clips from, from uh, Baldwin and, um, and from Buckley. So I think this is about where it will be. And every face is white. And since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven, to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians, when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace, and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. <laughs> the disaffection, the demoralization, and the gap between one person and another, only on the basis of the color of their skins, begins there and accelerates, accelerates throughout a whole lifetime. So that presently you realize you're 30 and are having a terrible time managing to trust your countrymen, by the time you are 30, you have been through a certain kind of mill. And the most serious effect of the mill you've been through is again not the catalog of disaster. The policemen, the taxi drivers, the waiters, the landlady, the landlord, the banks, the insurance companies, the millions of details, 24 hours of every day, which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being. It is not that. It is by that time you've begun to see it happening in your daughter or your son or your niece or your nephew. You are 30 by now and nothing you have done has helped you to escape the trap. But what is worse than that is that nothing you have done and as far as you can tell, nothing you can do will save your son or your daughter from meeting the same disaster and not impossibly coming to the same end. All right, so you, you can see there that Baldwin is, you know, the, the motion again is, is on this idea of the American dream. So part of what he's doing is, in this part of the speech, is, is drawing uh, the audience's attention to the ways in which part of the, the mythology of the American dream is that even if one is not able to achieve um, uh, this is sort of, you know, wealth and so on and success or however one defines success in one's own life, you can have hope that the next generation will have a life better than yours. And Baldwin is, 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 is reminding people of this haunting sense that a lot of parents feel at the margins of society. They don't really, they're not really sure that their kids are going to have much better lives than they've had or even their children's children. So Baldwin wants to draw um, our, our attention to that fact. But he also, so he talks uh, in, in the speech about the ways in which uh, white supremacy uh, victimizes um, people at the margins, but he also has a portion of the speech where he talks about uh, what the ways in which white supremacy uh, has victims and its would-be beneficiaries, right? So Baldwin makes the case that those who are enthralled to white supremacy have had their moral lives destroyed. So he gives the most powerful example one could give in this historical moment, which is Sheriff Jim Clark in Selma, Alabama, who's on the, you know, on papers, newspapers and uh, across around, around the world, 
um, is using his cattle prod against men, women, and children. Baldwin says, Sheriff Jim Clark, it's easy to dismiss him as a monster, but he is a human being. He loves his wife. He loves his children. He likes to get drunk, Baldwin says. And so what he does in that, in that moment is he says, when Clark uses his cattle prod against, uh, you know, someone, what's happening to his victim is ghastly, but what's happening to Jim Clark inside of him is in some ways much, much worse. So that's the, uh, the sort of one other important aspect of, of, of his argument. So Baldwin gives this speech. He, uh, he sits down, he gets a standing ovation, which is a very rare thing at the Cambridge Union. And then Buckley has his turn. Uh, and here's a little sample of, of William F. Buckley. The American community has refused to do this. The American community, almost everywhere he goes, uh, treats him with the kind of unction, uh, the kind of satisfaction uh, at posturing carefully for his flagellations of our civilization that indeed, uh, quite properly, uh, commands the contempt which he so eloquently showers upon us. Uh, it is impossible, in my judgment, uh, to deal with the indictment of Mr. Baldwin unless one is prepared to deal with him as a white man. Unless one is prepared to say to him, the fact that your skin is black is utterly irrelevant to the arguments that you raise. Uh, the fact uh, that uh, you sit here as is your rhetorical device uh, and lay the entire weight of the Negro ordeal on your own shoulders uh, is irrelevant to the argument that we are here to discuss. The gravamen of Mr. Baldwin's charges against America are not so much that our civilization has failed him and his people, that our ideals are insufficient, but that we have no ideals. That our ideals rather are some sort of a superficial coating uh, which we come up with at any given moment in order to justify uh, whatever commercial and noxious experiment we are engaged in. Uh, thus, uh, Mr. Baldwin can write his book, The Fire Next Time, uh, in which he threatens America uh, he didn't, in writing that book, speak with the British accents that he used exclusively tonight, uh, in which he threatened America with the necessity uh, for us to uh, jettison... Uh, for us to jettison our entire civilization. The only thing that the white man has that the Negro should want, he said, is power. Uh, and he is treated from coast to coast in the United States. Uh, All right. So um, so because I've I've gone over time, let's definitely let's stop that. There. I know you want to watch watch the rest of Buckley's speech, but I, w w I will not allow that. Um, there's a little bit more substance to Buckley's speech that I will um, I'm happy to talk about in, in the Q&A. But uh, just the, the last thing I want to say um, is just just give you a sense uh, or, 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 can, or Clive, you can ask me about the, the aftermath. If you want, you want to use, include that in the Q&A, maybe. All right, so why don't I wrap there? Thank you for your attention and, and your patience while I work my way through that story. Appreciate it. Thank you. Wow, there's so much for us to get through in such a little time. Um, I'm very, very conscious of time, time so I'd like to kind of open up the question to your audience. I'm sure you have many. Um, so maybe kind of set the grounding for that. Um, could you give me some, some brief um, 
background to how they came to be in the Cambridge Union? What was the kind of process that these two figures became to debating that race question at that particular time? Yeah, um, so the the story of how they got there um, is, is, is one that was really accidental. So early in 65, so January of 65, uh, the publicist for Baldwin's uh, third novel, the paperback edition of uh, Another Country, his third novel is coming out in the UK. And so the publicist essentially, you know, asked him if he would do a week in, in, in and around London uh, to promote the book. Um, and, and Baldwin agreed to that. And so they reached out to the Cambridge Union and said, will you host James Baldwin for an author event? And um, the, 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 the uh, Peter Fullerton, who I got to hang out with last night, who's the, the guy who took this call, it was then a 21-year-old college student who was the president of the union, uh, said, no, we will not host James Baldwin for an author event. This is a debating society. But so we'd be happy to host him for a debate. And so they they agreed in principle to, you know, at least the publicist did, agreed in principle to have Baldwin come to the Cambridge Union to debate. And then a series of, um, you know, a series of events happened then that led Buckley to be there. One of the students had met Buckley in 1963 and said, you know, I, I met this guy. He's conservative and he's a debater. Uh, maybe he would be willing to debate Baldwin. Because they tried to get some U.S. senators to come debate Baldwin. They all turned him down. Um, and, uh, and so in a matter of just weeks, this all came together, the BBC came to record it. Um, and so, yeah, that was the kind of backstory of how it happened. And, and I should say that Baldwin's agent canceled the debate. I mean, I didn't try to cancel. He sent a telegram canceling the debate a week before it happened, but it went on. And one, and it's, it's one of the things that's unclear is exactly why it went on. And my suspicion, one of the things I speculate about in the book is that like that encounter with Kilpatrick, Baldwin's handlers didn't want him to do this sort of thing, but he felt an obligation to do it, is my kind of my best guess on that front. Wow, goodness, fantastic. Questions, um, who would like to begin? Yeah. Um, so I wonder about the agreements in that world, how much you talk about the media, particularly the part eight comment there. One of the things I'm really interested in that you wrote, I just needed to get your perspective on it, you said that the Negro in America has only been able to put his story through music. Mm. Um, and I'm kind of how you about that, particularly maybe today, but also in light of what we say. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, you know, Baldwin, and this is something Clive and I had a chance to talk about a little bit uh, prior to, to, to coming over here. I mean, Baldwin is somebody who is uh, is very interested in, as you point out, in, in uh, he's very interested in music, he's interested in film, he's interested in, in a, a kind of the ways in which that sort of avenues that have been available uh, for people to um, to to describe their experience in, in sometimes you know subversive ways to get those into the popular culture and so I think music for Baldwin is a really central uh, medium and he talks a lot about that in, in in his writing about the sort of the uses of the blues as he puts it in 1964 in one of his great essays on the, the subject but I think um, so I think that and there's ways in which Baldwin is this kind of like cinema critic right I mean he right he does has a collection. Um, the Devil Finds Work, which is all about cinema and, and talks about ways in which not only, you know, uh, cinema, um, you know, the, the sort of intentions of its creators, but also the, the ways in which we consume cinema or, or different forms of art and how that differs in many ways based on our, our experiences and our identities. Um, and so one thing I think is just, and I, I don't know, this is, and I don't know, this is the last thing I'll say on this, is that, is that um, Baldwin does say in that, that conversation with Kilpatrick, the, the segregationist, um, he says, he comes back to that idea of what are, you know, sort of getting back to this core issue for all human beings. What is it that you're so afraid of, right? That existential question. 
and he talks to Kilpatrick about what he, you know, he says, I, I, I want to, I want to suggest to you, Mr. Kilpatrick, what it is that you're so afraid of. And he says, what you're so afraid of is that you know that the liberation of people like me means we're going to be able to tell our story. And we've had to watch you very closely all of our lives. You haven't had to pay much attention to us. We've been there as something less than human. And now we're going to be liberated to tell our story. And that's what scares you more than anything else. Because we know you better than you know, you know yourself, right? Uh, yeah, my question is, do you think that um, Buckley was actually pro white uh, supremacy, or was it more from, because you implied it could be, a more from a libertarian point of view, that he doesn't think that the state should be enforcing uh, society changing to uh, be more egalitarian. If it's going to become egalitarian, let it happen naturally, not the state enforce it. Because that is why some conservatives are against certain things. It's not that they're against society changing, it's that they're against the state making society change before it naturally happens. Right, yeah, so that that's certainly, um, I think in terms of Buckley's self-conception, I think that captures it rather well. I mean, he, uh, he's, so one of the sort of ideas that he's associated with and, um, and National Review is associated with is this idea of fusionism in American conservatism. And, and it has this kind of fusionism as a kind of, we're gonna fuse various uh, groups on the right into one movement, that is one meaning, but also a philosophical meaning that has this link between libertarianism and a kind of traditionalism. And the argument went something like this, that you cannot, you cannot enforce morality, right? Morality has to be, in order to be authentic, has to be freely chosen. And so they applied that philosophy to civil rights. So people in the magazine and Buckley himself said, you, you can't force people to, to like each other. You can't force people to live together. You have to allow this to happen organically. And so the civil rights movement, one of the slogans was freedom now. And I, I say in the book, Buckley's slogan for the civil rights movement would be some freedom one day when we decide you're ready. So part, I think that what you're saying is true in terms of Buckley's self-conception, but one of the big challenges, right, is that that view comes, has to come from a position of tremendous privilege, right? Because he, he's saying that, yes, this happened, has to happen organically. And he says this in Why the South Must Prevail, his most infamous uh, piece on race. He says at the end, he says to, to white people in the South, but I am imploring you, do not take advantage of this immense power that we are saying you should have. You need to use your power humanely and bring about a genuine cultural equality organically that will then be the foundation for political equality. But, you know, based on, you know, so this is where the big question is like, did he honestly believe that was a possible thing based on everything he knows about human nature? And that's something we'll never know, you know, for sure. But I, you know, I think that there's uh, reasons to be skeptical. <laughs> Thank you, that's fantastic, really interesting. And um, I was struck by what you were uh, reflecting of Baldwin's opinions, or, or, or the conclusions that Baldwin came to about how, uh, as you describe, uh, people cling to an ideology rather than the force themselves. And they, so they cling to positions and then they're sort of under delusions. And um, it's interesting because in the debate, my question, I suppose, if you could just make this statement, is, is what was the outcome of the debate? Because the, from the clips you've shown us, um, Baldwin appears as, uh, as, you know, as what extremely authentic 
human being, whereas Buckley appears as if he's sort of out of, I don't know, a, a character in a, uh, a classical play that's sort of patrician. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like he's interesting that he says something about Gordon's accent, <laughs> and his accent seems to be full of some sort of bizarre machine. So he, uh, and, and he appears anachronistic, even, you know, I don't, it's hard to know, but from the mid 60s, and I've seen Paul Finn, uh, I've seen some bizarre appearances. And Bucky seems very anachronistic in that environment in the Cambridge Student Union. And I would imagine that the outcome of the debate is that Baldwin's philosophy about how one, how groups of people cling to ideologies to define themselves is very well illustrated by the fact that Buckley appears to not be able to articulate anything from, from his soul, mm. but through this lens and through this kind of presentation. Yeah, yeah, very well said. I mean, yeah, and so I, I always, I, I usually forget to say who won, right? So Baldwin's side uh, wins 544 to 164. Um, and having just been in the Cambridge Union last night, it's sort of uh, amazing that many people were able to fit in that space, but somehow they did it and violated fire code. But yeah, and so and one of the fascinating things that I mean, you're, you're um, explaining really well is that Buckley's approach and part of the speech, and you get a little bit of this in what he says there, is that he is trying to convince those students that, that Baldwin is the ideologue. Baldwin is hell-bent on overthrowing Western civilization. He says to the students, he wants you to go raid the libraries around here and burn all the Plato and Aristotle and tear up the Bibles and, um, and so on and so forth. But, and then he, he, he concludes his talk by saying essentially, like anyone who tells you there's an instant cure to the race problem is a charlatan, right? This is what Buckley tells the students. Um, whereas, as you're pointing out, Baldwin is the one, actually, who's, who's really, defi he defies ideological categorization throughout his life, and it's something that frustrates a lot of his contemporaries and, and people interpreting him now, but that was Baldwin, like, that was Baldwin, like, that was, he wanted to try to think about these things from the inside, and in some ways, you know, Buckley is up there, even though a much, you know, he is, has all this formal debate experience, and in some ways, plays to the, what the crowd was used to, I mean, Formal debate is this mixture of intellectual exercise and kind of performance art, right? And so Buckley, he knows, and it, you know, he knows how to make them laugh. He makes them laugh a number of times. And Baldwin gets up there and delivers this Jeremiah, this sermon about white supremacy, which was not something they were used to, you know. And they were, you know, they sit there for the whole, you know, no one stands up to ask a question of Baldwin. You know, there's no interruptions or anything because it would have been almost profane to do so. Um, so yeah, there's something about we and Clive and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. There's something about this the style that's very telling, right? I think there's something about the way they, they perform that is is you know revealing of the substance of what they have to, to offer. Sadly, we have time. I know there's so many more I'm questions so, to be I, asked. And I am so sorry for going on so long. I get carried away, but but I make up for it by I will hang out and, and talk about anything anybody wants for as long as as long as you like. Uh, but thank you so much for your, your patience. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, there'll be opportunity to actually ask further questions after I think there's some books to be bought as well. Uh, but for now, just please join me in thanking Professor Bikula for his fantastic talk. Professor Nicholas Bacola is the Elizabeth and Morris Glixman Chair in Political Science at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon. He is the author of The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and The Debate of a Race in America, and The Political Thought of Frederick Douglass in Pursuit of American Liberty. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Nicholas Bacola for joining us for this event. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. The Ballpark Podcast is supported by the Phelan family.
to listen to our other event recordings and episodes of our regular podcast, The Ballpark, to send to LSE US Center into your search engine of choice. We'd love to hear what you think about the US Center and our events. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.